Welcome to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors and collectors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our live interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, what they have in their personal collections, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their life and writing in revealing conversations with our book specialist, Roger Nichols. And find us at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com. Now sit back and enjoy a few minutes with Modern Sign Books. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. One of the best collaborations in client crime fiction today is the partnership between Dr. Bill Bass and our guest today, John Jefferson. Together, writing as Jonathan Bass, they have created the Body Farm series based on the very real Tennessee Anthropological Research Facility founded by Dr. Bass back in 1981. Now, prior to writing books, Jefferson worked as a staff science writer at Oak Ridge National Laboratory, freelance magazine and newspaper journalist, and as a television documentary writer-producer. It was while writing and directing a two-part documentary for National Geographic Channel on the body farm that he met founder Dr. Bill Bass and worked with him on Bass's nonfiction memoir, Death's Acre. That led to the decision to collaborate on a series of crime novels based on Dr. Bass and his work on the body farm. The latest is called Without Mercy. We're very pleased to welcome John Jefferson. Thank you. Happy to be here. Now, you are a real science nerd, and I know this because in a previous interview, you said you, in high school, ground and polished your very own telescope mirror. Good heavens, you, you are possibly the only person on the planet besides my friend Jim who knows or remembers that. <laughs> uh, I did grind and polish my own telescope mirror. It was a six-inch slab of uh, Pyrex glass, and there was a six-inch slab of plate glass underneath it, and the procedure was simple but quite tedious. You would sprinkle these abrasives, basically sand or grit, that got progressively finer as you invested more and more weeks in the process. You know, just push the push the mirror blank, it was called, back and forth over the other one. And as it hung over the edge, it would scrape out a little bit of the middle. And, you know, over countless hours, you would scoop out, oh, I don't know, I think it was maybe an eighth of an inch altogether, but it was perfectly smooth and perfectly round. Uh, and it became you know, as slick as mirror glass after all that grinding and polishing. Mm-hmm. Do you still have it? You know, I think maybe I let it go in our last move. I've hauled that thing around for 40 years, uh, <laughs> and I never, I never actually got it made into a telescope. Oh, is that right? Wait, well, as the fellow says, you know, life is what happens to us while we're making other plans. So, uh, yeah, well, there was somehow there was some level of anxiety. You know, it was uh, it was all about the project. You know, I, I had these great plans for the telescope, but somehow when push came to shove, um, I just couldn't quite send it off to get the coating of aluminum on it. Mm-hmm. I was afraid somehow it just wouldn't live up to my dreams of the of the telescope. So. I think you're afraid that you'd put it, put it all together and then there'd be a flaw someplace in it. It would drive you nuts. I think it's like, hey, I thought Saturn would be bigger or something. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, what, so. when you set, set out to write, you didn't have to look very far to find your central character. Dr. Bill Brockton just happens to be a forensic anthropologist who founded a body farm at the University of Tennessee. Was that a big factor in deciding to create the series? Oh, sure. I mean, we had started out with a nonfiction book, a memoir about one of his greatest cases, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, but then, you know, I thought, you know, 
a lot of crime fiction heroes are so dark, and you wouldn't want to in real life. You wouldn't want to spend ten minutes with this guy. You know, why not give people a character that's actually likable and and despite the grim nature, is actually cheerful. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just thought people might enjoy. I'd certainly enjoyed hanging around with Dr. Bat. You know, at one point, uh, in one of the interviews we, I checked out, you described him as being up to his elbows in gore and whistling cheerfully. Um, <laughs> how would he describe you? <laughs> how would he describe me? Uh, frequently late. Um, <laughs> let's see. Um, a little more edgy, maybe. Uh, as he likes to say, Dr. Bill Brockton uh, does things that Bill Bass would never do. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Brockton is actually pretty squeaky clean. Uh, you know, he has, in one of the books, he winds up at a cockfight, but he doesn't know he's going to a cockfight. He gets dragged along unwittingly. Um, in another book, he's, uh, he ends up at a drag show at a gay bar, but he's going there looking for a killer, so it's not, uh-huh. you know. So so anytime he's less than a Boy Scout, it's for, it's for good or accidental reason. Uh, I mean, Bass has never gotten a speeding ticket or had a drink in his life. Uh, and, you know, both of those are fairly frequent occurrences for me. Uh, <laughs> I, we'll not go into that at this point, but uh, okay. I, I wanted, this particular book uh, seems to describe more the internal emotions of Dr. Brockton. Yeah, well, he's, you know, he's got a lot going on in this book. Um, you know, this this guy that he put away, uh, the serial killer who almost killed Brockton and his whole family years and years before, uh, you know, resurfaces. And, of course, that brings with it a swirl of emotions for Brockton. Uh, but also he's got, you know, his longtime assistant, Miranda, you know, who's, who's been with us through many books, um, not every book, but almost every book. She's finally finishing up her Ph.D. This is the world's longest Ph.D. program. <laughs> she's been in it for, for at least a decade now. Uh, and so she's, you know, the prospect of Miranda going off, you know, and leaving him, you know, really triggers some, you know, some anxieties and some sadness for Brockton. Well, he even resorts to a bit of blackmail to try to keep her not with her, but with uh, his superiors. Yeah, I mean, he's, he tries to, right, he, he wants to offer her such a good job at the University of Tennessee that, of course, she'll want to stay. Uh, but but uh, a policy or, or rule at the University of Tennessee about hiring their own graduates stands in the way. But, but yeah. Brockton's not going to let that uh, <laughs> impede his plan, shall we say. No, no, he's... Uh, uh, well, I won't won't give any plot points away other than, other than the fact that there's a lot of tension involved in this. And there seems to be, well, you, the actual case that they start out on is a particularly gruesome case that apparently is based on something that really happened. It is based on a, on a true story. At least it was certainly told to me as a true story. Um, the circumstances, you know, as they were related to me, were a little bit different. I took some some liberties for the sake of the book, but but the story that was told to me um, was that the skeleton of a young man was found chained to a tree in the woods in Tennessee. This was many years ago, uh, and 
He was later identified to be the son of a, of a prominent guy in the community who'd gone missing. Uh, and the speculation, the, you know, the local lore was that he had raped a young woman, a girl in the community mm. who was the, the daughter of a poor farmer. And the, and the thinking was there was no evidence of this and there were never charges brought. Uh, but the thinking was that the, that the father of the girl took justice into his own hands. And, and chained this young man to the tree uh, and, and kept him alive there for quite some time. Um, so, I mean, it's a horrifying, it's a horrifying scenario. Uh, I heard the story years and years ago and it stuck with me all this time. And, it, you know, I always, always meant to find a way to use it in one of the books. And yeah. And finally this time I did. Uh-huh. Uh, but, it, yes, it's, it's incredible. I mean, to imagine that kind of calculated, slow torturous murder um, it's, it's really sometimes sometimes I really horrify myself yeah, you better watch that you know wander in those dark recesses of your mind you might get ambushed sometime there so that's yeah. right that's right yeah. yeah the way I sometimes put it is you, you can't walk through the dark alleys uh, without something sticking to your soul ah yes well you know that also may be in the pursuit of artistic uh, genius as well. So we, we'll give you points for that. The interesting thing is you've got this, this case which gets progressively more gruesome as initial evidence is uncovered. And then about halfway through, it kicks up in a whole new level, level as, as uh, this Nick Satterfield es- escapes from prison and comes after the doctor. Um, this one feels like you're, you're really going for all the afterburners on it. <laughs> well, you know, that that whole story arc with Satterfield, the serial killer, you know, it, it, you know, it felt a little bit unresolved to me. I mean, he goes to prison, Brockton, basically years before when Satterfield almost kills the Brockton family. Basically, Brockton stopped a cop from shooting Satterfield. So Brockton intervenes, uh, you know, in a belief that the justice system is the best way to handle this. Um, and then in a, in a prior book, in, in the previous book, last year's book in the series, um, you know, Satterfield, you know, the menace of Satterfield rears its ugly head again, although, um, you know, that Satterfield kind of reaches out and strikes at someone close to Brockton but doesn't get to Brockton himself. So it just felt like, okay, you know, there's there's one more shoe to drop here. You know, it's yeah. got a drop right beside Bill Brockton or on top of Bill Brockton. And, you know, and he's got to deal with this um, once and for all. So, so yeah, the afterburners, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe the notion of burning is about right. For, oh, uh, yeah. Yes. Well, and also the the escape uh, is particularly, I'll say, gruesome in, in a way, and always a bit, in, in at least in in style, to Hannibal Lecter's escape uh, in terms of the kind of length that they're willing to go to to escape. Yeah, it did. It did. Um, and I can't remember now whether I was, it was consciously. You know, paying some homage to Hannibal Lecter. If I, you know, got partway through it, I thought, oh, this reminds me of, of Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs. But obviously, obviously, this character is not uh, Satterfield. Our villain is not as intellectual and 
shall we say, artistic in his evil, uh, maybe his Hannibal Lecter, but he's certainly, he's certainly a, a really, really bad guy, but, and also a very clever guy. I also want to comment in, in switching just a little bit about all the wonderful cultural references you drop in throughout. And I, I do take notes when I read these things. And gosh, hey, there's... Tell you. You've read it closely. Yes. Well, you, the, uh, for instance, the Revenant movie uh, gets quite a bit of, of ink in here. <laughs> you must have really liked it. I, I found the Revenant really interesting. You know, that's for your listen, any listeners who may not have seen it. That's the Leonardo DiCaprio movie about the, the mountain man, Hugh Glass, who, who gets uh, badly, badly mauled by a grizzly bear and manages to crawl out of the frozen wilderness with you know, busted legs and terrible, terrible um, infected wounds. Um, I, did, I found the movie fascinating. Things was that Leo DiCaprio was on screen for 12 hours on yeah. <laughs> and had about 12 words of dialogue. Um, but um, you know, I was interested partly because you know we had a we had a bear story. I mean, this DiCaprio movie with the bear comes out you know right at the time I'm writing this novel that you know in which a bear plays a significant role. So just the synchronicity of of that I thought was was interesting. But then also in the Revenant there. The, these are Rikra Indians who are chasing the fur trappers throughout across the wilderness. Um, you know, and that may that intrigued me as well. That seems kind of like karma because Bill Bass spent a lot of years excavating a Rikra Indian graves in the Great Plains in South Dakota. Yeah. And so, so basically, I called him up and I said, "Hey, let's go. Let's go to the movies. I want to take you to see this movie and see what you think about it." Uh, so we had, you know, we had a field trip. Uh, you know, and then after that, after we saw the movie, we went over and we looked at some of the uh, some of the Arikara Indian skeletons that are in the collection at the University of Tennessee. Uh, it was actually it was quite fascinating to to pull these two hundred year old skeletons out of these boxes and and look at them and just try to imagine what their stories had been. Mm-hmm. That uh, that is part of the charm of the whole series is that fascination with. The detective work of discovering what happened or trying to figure out what happened in a very unusual situation. We, the normal, we don't usually play around with bones, most of us, uh, not human ones anyway. Uh, and right. the opportunity to to have to do so vicariously through your characters is just a wonderful thing. Uh, do appreciate that. Um, yeah, well, thanks. It certainly was fascinating with me to you know to kind of walk down. Mem- that particular memory lane of all these you know, thousands of Arikara Indian graves that, that Bass exhumed and, and look at a few of the skeletons and you know, think about them. I mean, we literally did, uh, I, I borrowed pretty closely from what we actually looked at um, to write these, these Arikara Indian skeletons into the book. We saw this magnificent young adult man, you know, he's probably over six feet tall, very, very robust. He must have been, uh, if, if he were, had been, if he was a warrior, you know, when he was alive, he must have been, you know, quite a, quite an imposing warrior. Uh, and then this, you know, young woman or girl who was probably around 14. Uh, and then this two-year-old, the, the skeleton of a toddler with the, the various the sections of the cranium because the, the cranial sutures or the joints in the skull weren't yet fused. 
uh, you know, the pieces of the skull had just come apart in the box. And so, you know, I'm in there trying to fit these pieces back together like a jigsaw puzzle from 200 years ago. It was, it was really quite astonishing. Yeah. Uh, and, to, and to read the inventory of, of grave goods, things that had been buried yeah. with this child, was, was so poignant. You know, the, the baby was buried in buffalo robes that had, you know, thousands of glass beads sewn onto the robe. Yeah. Uh, little clay and stone figurines of animals. It was just, it was really touching to imagine, you know, the, you know, how cherished this child must have been to, to be buried with such, you know, such magnificent things to accompany it into the afterlife. I, wow, that's, that's really poignant stuff. Um, and it was, the, those particular scenes, scenes were. I also want, in, in relating some of the notes that I took about, about uh, cultural references, you uh, mentioned Mental Floss, which happens to be a Jimmy Buffett song. It may not have been. Uh, no, it <laughs> Uh, uh, but you do quote uh, Joni Mitchell from Big Yellow Taxi. You know, don't it always seem to go? You don't know what you've got till it's gone. Star Trek comes in right. there. Batman comes in there. <laughs> the Grinch comes in there. This is fun stuff because it it it's like the way real people talk. They do cultural references all the time. Yeah, well, thanks. I, you know, I have these little things rattling around in my head, and I got to do something with them. <laughs> right. Well, you know, usually this is the point in the interview which we we talk about. You know what's next, but in reading the acknowledgments at the end, uh, you talk about giving the uh, the Dr. Brockton a, a sabbatical, and so the question that we have is: is this a pause or a conclusion? Well, don't know, don't know. Um, did, you, did you ask Bill to ask that question? I did, and I got. And what did he say? He said, "Well, you know, I'm." Our age difference is considerable. I'm, I think he said he was 80-something years old, and he says, I'm not sure that I want to keep, yeah, want to keep on, on doing this um, that much longer. And, uh, and I said, well, that's, we certainly hope that you do. He said, that's not necessarily the last, but I want to think about it. So, okay. Right, right. Well, he's been saying that for, he's been saying that for years now. <laughs> but the so, fact you put something so I would in say, print, so. I would say stay tuned and see what happens. And one thing we're working on right now is we've got some, you know, some people talking to us who are interested in, in developing a TV series or a feature film or, or both. And, and so we're very interested to see what comes of that. If that comes about, you know, we may have a, you know, sort of new careers as TV or film consultants. Um, so, so who knows? I mean, uh, the odds of anything, the odds of anything that gets proposed as a film or TV series actually making it to the screen are pretty slim. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I mean, for years, we, we, had a close, we had a close call with that some years ago. Um, but, you know, we've always felt that this would be a great TV series. I mean, these are such rich characters and there are so oh, many cases yeah. to work with, you know, real cases and fictional cases um, that I just, I just can't imagine this wouldn't be a terrific series. So we'll see. You know, hold that, hold that hope out for us, if you would. We will absolutely do that. And if that happens, and we hope it does, you'll be able to contribute as somebody who has been a documentary filmmaker and producer. That's right. That's right. If I haven't forgotten everything by then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Is there, is there any message that you'd like to send out to, to the people who are listening to this podcast, to your, your many readers? Oh, well, we so appreciate all the people who have, have read the books over the years. It's it's just been such a great 
such a great honor and privilege and and uh, heck of a lot of fun to to do this series and we we sure appreciate the chance to do that it's given me a chance to spend a whole lot of time with one of the world's great forensic scientists um, it's given me a you know a chance to you know to try my hand at writing novels and discover I could you know do a fairly decent job at it uh, it's given me a chance to meet a whole lot of lovely people. Uh, and it's kept me from starving and my family as well. <laughs> so the main message is thank you. Um, other message, don't kill your friends and neighbors. Don't be mean. Don't be like Satterfield. Um, uh, you know, um, I, I guess, I guess on a more serious note, one thing I've tried to do in the books, you know, over, especially in, in the last handful of books is include some human rights and social social justice messages because mm-hmm. I, I just feel more and more strongly about the importance of, of that. I mean, there are so many injustices, not just individual crimes, but, you know, but sort of societal injustices in our world. And, and you know, I've tried, to, I've tried to open people's minds and hearts a little bit, um, you know, to, to being more aware of that and, and speaking up for that, um, you know, treating women and girls better, for instance. I just I think that's such an important issue and problem in our world. Um, you know, not thinking that because someone's different than you, they're somehow they're somehow not as good as you. Uh, you know, those things are things that I I really uh, care passionately about. So so anything you know. Anything I can say or do to help people open their hearts, um, you know, I, I would I would love to to plant that seed in people, however I can. All right. And when you're reading Without Mercy, please do. We're uh, uh, speaking to our our listeners now. Please pay attention to the information when he goes to visit the Southern Poverty Law Center. Some very fascinating and frightening stuff takes place there. So. There is, and those people at the Southern Poverty Law Center are, are doing, I think, super important work tracking hate groups in this country and, and just, you know, reminding those of us who might not otherwise be aware of it, my gosh, you know, there are these disturbing dark trends and, you know, and let's, you know, let's be bigger and better than that. You know, let's, you know, let's be the, you know, the, the good version of America, you know, not the, not the fearful and, and frightened and, and harsh version, you know, that, that seems to be coming out sometimes these days. All right. Well, on that note of hope and promise, we, we thank our, our guest this morning has been John Jefferson, part of the uh, wonderful uh, team of Jefferson Bath and the, uh, the, all of the Body Farm novels, which are available in autographed copies at DJ Books. Hey, thanks so much for being with us. The latest is Without Mercy, and we want to wish you and the Dr. Bass the best. Roger, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Modern Sign Books on Blog Talk Radio with book specialist Roger Nichols. Be sure to check us out at modernsignbooks.blogspot.com.